Welcome to the American Thoracic Society podcast on lung biology with a focus on modulating the complement system in airway epithelial dysfunction. My name is Rishikesh Kolkarni. I'm an instructor and a physician scientist at the Washington University School of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. I take care of lung transplant recipients as well as ICU patients. Along with my mentor, Dr. John Atkinson, in the Division of Rheumatology, we look at how complement proteins locally modulate airway epithelial responses. We are pleased to have with us Dr. Stefan Lahua, who is an early-stage investigator at Johns Hopkins and an assistant professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. He obtained his PhD from the Department of Pathology at McGill University, following which he trained as a postdoctoral fellow at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in the Division of Immunobiology. In 2012, he moved to Johns Hopkins and currently has an independent laboratory there. Dr. Lahua's broad scientific interest is to understand the regulation of innate immune responses at mucosal surfaces that shaped type 2 immunity. We are also fortunate to have Dr. Farah Kheradman, who is a professor of medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine and holds the Nancy Chang PhD Endowed Professorship for the Biology of Inflammation Center. She has many accolades, including being elected to the American Society of Clinical Investigation in 2006. Dr. Kheradman's program is focused on understanding the role of innate and adaptive immune cells in the pathogenesis of obstructive lung diseases, in particular in human COPD and asthma. Her research has elucidated the critical role that is played by several members of the matrix metalloproteinase family in lung inflammation. Her group's published studies are among the first to suggest an adaptive immune basis to human COPD and emphysema. Thank you to the both of you for joining us. Please can you give us a background of your current work and how uh, complement biology ties into it. I think Dr. Kiratman, could we start with you first? Sure. Um, thanks, Desh, for the opportunity. It is my uh, distinct pleasure to uh, tell you a, a little bit about the work that I uh, started really uh, uh, almost 20 years ago, where we uh, started the qu questioning the whole premise behind uh, what is it about people that smoke um, and develop uh, chronic lung disease and that is sort of independent of the actual active uh, smoking uh, uh, status. That is, you and I as pulmonologists see patients in clinic and realize that when we take the history, we realize these patients stopped smoking years ago, and yet the inflammation in their lungs and the de deterioration of the lung continues despite the fact that these people, these people have cissy stopped smoking cigarettes a um, while back. And so that really piqued my interest and my curiosity in research, try to understand what is it, the patho what is it about the pathophysiological mechanism that underlies um, chronic lung illnesses. And so in particular, cigarette smoking, because uh, while a lot of people were not aware or, uh, of the dangers of cigarette smoking, uh, they've been informed about it, and then they actually actively stopped it, and yet their disease continues. And as we know, this is not a uniform uniform response to cigarette smoking. In fact, some people continue to smoke, and then they 
at least appear to be asymptomatic. And so in order to answer that question, I dived into trying to take lung tissue directly from the lungs of patients that were undergoing lung volume reduction surgery. And it really was to my surprise to find the amount of inflammation, the number of inflammatory cells, both innate and adaptive immune cells, that are still very much residing within the tissue of these patients who stopped smoking. And so how it relates to complement protein is actually um, something that came on later when we actually started um, in a preclinical model where we actually exposed mice to cigarette smoke to try to uh, answer some of the hypothetical questions that came up as we were studying human disease. And so because uh, complements have been shown to be an anaphylatoxin, that meaning that they actually, pieces of them, recruit inflammatory cells in, into the tissue, we started then taking advantage of some of these mice that were deficient in these anaphylatoxins, either the receptor or the complement protein, and that's where our discovery began, and it's still going. So I'll stop there unless, and, um, unless you want me to continue. Oh, thank you. That's a, that's a hours. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to stop that's, here that's, and like, let Dr. Lahoy. Uh, that's a fascinating uh, introduction and background. And uh, yeah, I know uh, having sort of uh, be, being a bit familiar with both yours and Dr. Lahoy's uh, uh, work, um, it looks like you have both uh, sort of uh, parallel yet distinct expertises in studying immune cell uh, responses here. And so, um, Dr. Leha, uh, please correct me if I'm saying your last name incorrectly, but yeah, if you can also tell us how you sort of got to where you were and how yeah, complement I, the driven it, that would be fantastic. Sure. I know my name is a bit uh, difficult to pronounce. It's a French name, so it's La Joie, but, you know, I'm uh, used to having it pronounced any which way. Um, so, uh, in our lab, we primarily uh, work to understand how allergic diseases uh, like asthma manifest through uh, really aberrant uh, type 2 responses. So we focus how uh, innate immune pathways can either drive or actually prevent these uh, exacerbated or overzealous TH2 responses. And of course, complement is really central to innate immunity and plays a dominant role in regulating type 2 immunity. And we've known for some time that one of the major components of complement C3 is really important for the development of tissue responses following exposure to allergen. However, for, for, for a long time, we really didn't know how. And uh, one of our recent papers in mucosal immunology explored the possibility that uh, C3 can drive type 2 immunity by engaging uh, another innate pathway, and those are type 2 innate lymphoid cells. So we know that innate lymphoid cells are important in many allergic diseases, including asthma, and it's not only because these cells can make uh, lots of uh, pro-allergic cytokines like interleukin-5 or interleukin-13, interleukin but it's also because they can provide direct help to TH2 cells. Uh, so what we found is mice that cannot respond to the C3A anaphylatoxin uh, because the C3 receptor has been knocked out, we found that these mice were, in fact, protected against manifestations brought on by exposure to house dust mite, and that include uh, improved lung function. 
So we found that uh, innate lymphoid cells can directly respond to C3A and uh, its ILCs seem to require complement for optimal function, both as cytokine secreting cells and as antigen present presenting cells to uh, T lymphocytes. So now we kind of know that at least in part the pro-allergic effect of C3 might be through enhancing C2 responses in the lungs. That's uh, fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for sort of summarizing uh, your sort of how you've gotten into this as well as your more recent work. Um, so one of the things that actually, that's fascinated me about uh, both of your the, the work done by both of you is how um, you've identified the specificity of some of these cellular responses in in driving uh, airway disease. Uh, and I think uh, Stefan, in your case, uh, you've looked at more recently looked at ILC2s, and I think Dr. Karadmat has seen your work on um, monocyte derived dendritic cells. And I'm curious uh, what has been your thought process probably from each one of you um, as to how you've honed in on that particular cell type driving the response and then probably excluded or, or probably arriving at how complement may be acting at or the anaphylotoxins may be acting on those particular cells rather than some of the other inflammatory cells that are also involved in the airway in driving those responses. So, yes, um, I'll start. Um, so, uh, yes, it was really an evolving process. We um, initially um, uh, searched the literature to find what is the connection between complement protein and cigarette smoking. And what we found was that the, the, uh, there was really actually no animal model, preclinical model, to study the role of complement. But what we found was that based on human literature that we actually found evidence for some people have found complement protein were upregulated in plasma. Some people have found that it was downregulated. And so basically the literature was quite divided. And But, but trying to understand um, really, the, we, we focused on complement three, in fact. And the reason being is that it's basically in the center of what all happens with complement protein. Um, when you're not a complement biology lab, meaning that everybody in the lab is studying complement, you want to go with what is the most central part of the dogma of uh, in this field. And that's why we approached Dr. Rick Wetzel at University of Hugh, uh, Texas Health Science Center who had um, knockouts of these particular um, molecules. So, um, We've, we obtained uh, C3-deficient mice, and uh, we exposed them to chronic cigarette smokers and found that, in, indeed, these mice, as would have been expected, are protected against em development of emphysema. Um, so, but that sort of started the whole journey as to what is the mechanism involved in protection against these um, cigarette insult from cigarette smoke, which, as you know, causes um, sterile inflammation within the lung. And so that sort of started out in the journey of how is it that even C3, um, it becomes activated. And that sort of we realized that when cigarette smoke is in the lung and it recruits 
innate immune cells, including macrophages and um, uh, myeloid-derived dendritic cells, which are also known as conventional dendritic cells. Um, they are bone marrow-driven, but you, uh, for the most part, they are referred to as myeloid-derived dendritic cells. Um, they, they are recruited to the lung. So, in fact, when we searched for the same cells in the lungs of mice that are deficient in complement protein 3, we found that there's a deficiency of these cells. Not only that, we also noted that the proteinases, including matrix metalloproteinase 12, and neutrophil elastase, and as well as neutrophils themselves are also not being recruited into the lungs of these mice that are deficient in C3. And so that sort of started as the whole journey of this complement protein 3 is the center of where not only it becomes activated and the release of these anaphylatoxins recruit more inflammatory cells, but also the proteinases within the lung can actually activate complement protein 3. So we did some in vitro assays and we uh, isolated uh, we used isolated um, proteinases as well as um, intact molecule, and in a dose-dependent way, we showed that neutrophil elastase is the most active form of proteinase that act that cleaves C complement protein three to into its um, downstream um, uh, fragments, and so that sort of st made us realize that now we're looking at. Um, sort of the, the it's it's the same molecule that not only gets activated because there's an inflammation in the lung, but it also its cleaved fragments recruit its um, the cells that recognize it. So in a way, it's an autocrine paracrine mechanism with where the complement protein are um, come into the into the lung. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Lawa, um, uh, I know you, uh, as you, you sort of briefly alluded to in your introduction, I think how are you able to dissect out the fact that IL, that the C3A, uh, C3A receptor interaction on ILC2s would be critical to driving some of the TH2 responses that we're seeing in, in allergic asthma? Um, I think the main the main issue with, with complement and also what makes it very interesting is that it can be not only produced by a lot of different cells, a lot of different cells can also respond to the breakdown product of complement activation, the anaphylatoxin C3A and C5A. So we know that individuals who have asthma usually have elevated uh, C3 and C3A production. Uh, we know that animals where we knock those pathways out are protected. But like I said before, we really didn't know how uh, how that how that how that happened. So we can delete that last sentence. Um, so there were uh, quite a few papers. Uh, trying to explore uh, which cell type could respond to complement and drive uh, airway disease or allergic airway disease. One of those uh, really good papers was by uh, Jorg Cole, one of the most uh, prominent uh, complement researchers in uh, the field. So he, we, we initially thought that C3A was going to target uh, amyloid cell, particularly dendritic cells. And what he found was pretty interesting is that um, dendritic cells that were sufficient or deficient for the C3 receptor really uh, 
didn't drive any difference. Uh, didn't really, it didn't really change uh, asthma pathogenesis. So we thought to ourselves that uh, there are many other cell types uh, like innate lymphoid cells uh, that have been unexplored. So we decided to see whether ILCs could be a target of C3. Now, there is some controversy in the field as to whether uh, lymphocytes, whether there are B cells or T cells or ILCs, can actually uh, respond to complement. But uh, there's been recently quite a few interesting papers, including some by Claudia Kemper, that I think are really showing that uh, lymphocytes uh, can uh, make complement and can respond to complement. So we extended those observations to innate lymphoid cells, and we saw that uh, complement can, in fact, engage innate lymphoid cells. It can, uh, and these ILCs can become more activated and better at secreting cytokines and better at activating T cells. And at least it's maybe one pathway by which uh, high levels of complement that you see in asthma could trigger uh, ILCs to make cytokines and engage T cells better and drive asthma pathogenesis that way. This is actually quite an interesting point that Dr. La Jolla brought up. Um, because we see very different things in cigarette smoke. And as you would imagine, the pathogenesis of asthma and COPD are quite different. And so here's in the interesting finding that in, in their model system, the C3A um, receptor in, in uh, specifically did not modulate it, but, um, and, and it's um, independent of the antigen-presenting cells. Whereas in, in our model system, it was very much driven by the antigen-presenting cells. So I guess this is, again, the, this brings the sophistication of these very, very primitive molecules that exist and have different roles um, under different conditions. Absolutely. So I think one of the criticisms, I think, when, when you talk to either um, both, I would probably say both immunologists as well as non-immunologists of so the, the criticism of complement biology is that it doesn't play as important of a role in endorgan effects. And I think uh, a lot of the pharmaceuticals in asthma and COPD appear to be targeted at specific cytokines or the receptors. So I think how, given, I mean, clearly a lot of your findings are seminal. And I'm curious, how do you think, how important of a role uh, does the complement system play in airway biology, and, and should, it, should it be targeted pharmaceutically? Oh, absolutely. The complement system is, a, is a quite an attractive target for development of anti-inflammatory drugs, both now be it hopefully uh, at the intracellular or, or at the extracellular level, and it could be, and lung is an, an absolutely fantastic organ to do site-directed specific therapy. And so on that notion, in fact, there are, um, as you know, the echolizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that targets C5, is definitely FDA-approved as an orphan drug, you know, for, for various uh, clinical indications, including 
um, hemolytic anemias, and, and then C1 inhibitors are also, um, um, although that's not a small molecule, but still uh, C1 inhibitors have also been in clinical application for years for people who have angioedema, chronic angioedema syndrome. So, um, and there are, uh, I wouldn't say many, but there are certainly uh, several companies who are uh, very interested in developing um, small molecule therapeutics uh, based on inhibiting complement. One of the biggest, now you bring up the reason why the pharmaceuticals may have not been interested in this, is because it was thought for the longest time that, uh, that inactivation of C3 will promote uh, infection. That is, if you inhibit systemic uh, forms of complement three, um, people become uh, more susceptible to developing um, um, different, uh, in, in particular, bacterial infection. But that's actually been not shown, and, and not even in our hands when we have the colonies of C3 null mice and expose them to cigarette smoke. The number of mice that that we found serendipitously found pneumonias were not significantly different than the wild type, and we've done done it in hun in not hundreds, but at least in 50 to 60 um, different mice. And I can tell you that that number does not turn to be statistically significant. And so, going back to the question of why people think that it's not a good target. Um, I, I, I disagree with that, and I think it is. Um, the question is that it's delivery. For instance, if uh, for systemic diseases, probably a um, humanized monoclonal antibody may work, but for a disease that is in the lungs, um, be it although it can sometimes be systematic, um, or in asthma, I would say that an inhaled form of inhibition of C3 potentially could be quite quite novel and interesting. And there are companies that are working on these molecules called statins. Yes, that is uh, indeed fascinating. And you're right, I think in the last uh, few years there have been uh, certain papers also in the lung transplant literature, uh, primarily in murine model systems, where uh, they've used inhaled C3 receptor antagonists to reduce the ischemia reperfusion injury, especially one that is exacerbated post uh, brain death. So I'm looking forward to seeing um, what's, uh, what lies ahead here, and my hope is this resurgence will be associated with novel therapeutic uh, development. Um, I think one of the uh, you know one of the other comments that often comes up among among investigators is that complement biology was sort of in fashion in the late 1980s or early 1990s, but then after that time, there was a gradual waning of interest. Uh, and now having said that, more recently, I think we're seeing an increased number of publications in both general journals as well as subspecialty journals, as well as an increase in the number of abstracts submitted to the American Thoracic Society annual conference. Um, given that both of you have been in this field for a while, I'm curious why did you think this decline in interest occurred when it was so of much interest initially, and um, what do you think has changed since that time? 
I can answer that, but I hate to answer all the questions. <laughs> so, Stefan, do you have any insight into this? Or you, um... Yeah, uh, I, I, that's my feeling. But I think most scientists felt that back in those days that we really had discovered the majority of how complement works. Um, and that was the complement cascade. And there was really, I think, nothing left nothing really exciting was left to be discovered about complement. And I think most of these labs then move on, moved on to other pathways. But throughout that time, there's always been a trickle of reports from complement labs. But lately, there's been a few super exciting paper, and I think that has really revived the field. Uh, and these papers have explored a role for complement in non-inflammatory context, uh, for example, in uh, homeostatic fun the homeostatic function of certain tissues, in synaptic pruning, and of course, uh, this, this burgeoning field of the intracellular complement, how it may maintain uh, cell health, and so on. So I think it always takes a couple of really high-impact stories to kind of reignite people's interest. And then I think we can expect that complement will likely now be including, included in the work of uh, many labs that didn't traditionally work on complement or used to work on complement. I think it's coming back for sure. Right. In addition to that, in fact, I, I've, uh, I've quizzed um, many people who are, I would say, that their labs are true complement biologist people, and I posed that question to Dr. Rick Wetzel, again, at University of uh, Texas Health Science Center, and he actually had a, a, a somewhat of a different approach than, than what Stefan just uh, told us, which I... I 100% actually agree with what he just said, that yes, it takes a novel outside-the-box approach to look at the same old uh, molecule and then find new uh, evidence for it. But what he told me is actually a little, puts a little more historic behind it. Uh, uh, he says that, you know, complement proteins were discovered over 100 years ago. And if you look back and do a literature search over if you, as far back as you can go, is that you actually see a cyclical nature of interest in complement biology that kind of goes up with, again, high-profile major discoveries, a whole bunch of people follow suit, and they get to a point where people either get exhausted or they their hypothesis wouldn't work out or, you know, you realize that, well, you know, it's, it's more complicated than what you thought and whether you can actually be able to harness this, the activation of complement cascade. And, again, it just sort of slowly wanes and then, there's another resurgence of um, high-impact studies that sort of triggers this. So, so the, 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 the cyclic nature of it is actually, A, um, has been shown, and B, is not all that unusual uh, with other fields. For instance, the role of matrix metalloproteinases. You know, I cut my teeth way back 20-some years ago in, a, in an MMP lab where we had MMP-Gordon conferences, mmp you know, uh, symposiums and MMP directed things. And then sort of the interest sort of waned out as people realized that, well, they're not a very good target for cancer biology or the clinical studies sort of failed. But so it's, A, not on that unusual for complements to go in a cyclical manner, and, B, it's, um, it's the nature of the game. Fair enough. Um, the next, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful, given um, the 
level of major high-profile papers that have come out in the last few years. I think starting out with intracellular complement proteins, more recently its role on how C3 modulates uh, autophagy. Uh, there are more, uh, there's a lot of uh, work coming out on how um, complement mod- the receptors modulate alloimmune responses in different forms of organ transplant. Um, I'm hopeful we are in the resurgence uh, phase of this field. Given that both of you are RO1-funded investigators running in independent labs, I'm curious in response to the previous question, what kind of feedback have you gotten on your grant applications centered around complement? And are, are grant reviewers and other scientists more receptive and uh, enthusiastic? Or, or what are the areas they suggest improving upon um, for the community to better accept these developments? Well, I'll answer to that. I've uh, been funded with my complement uh, story actually now for the past eight years. Uh, we have another really exciting paper that is now under review, and I'm hoping that with that, again, there will be another resurgence of the role of complement, not just in innate as an innate modulator, but really as a modulator of adaptive immune response in many ways it, it can do that. So I think that going back to um, what the reviewers or what the general community will feel um, about this is is what your question is. If you're if you have a strong premise for what you're going forward with it, um, and it's sort of even if it's outside the box, my experiment my my experience has been that the reviewers have generally been enthusiastic um and not so i you know it's, it complement papers and whenever you read a review paper it can be so dry that you know it can really put you to sleep real fast okay you know this this is the uh, this is the classical pathway, and there is an alternative <laughs> pathway, and there's this and that. And by the time you get to the second, third sentence, everybody just puts it away. But but if you want to work as a complement biologist, I'd suggest what Stefan said earlier is that think outside the box. Don't think of these molecules as something that you learn that people have been bringing up. You know, there's obviously truth to what's been done, but think of it as a modulator and now that we have such an expansive um, knowledge of how the immune system or the inflammatory cascades work, both at you know at, at an innate and acquired immunity, um, just think of of or at least find a very strong evidence for what you think your goal. You know, you change your goalpost, change it to where you think that that the direction should go and not what's been done. And I think for, with that, I, I, I encourage people to actually jump into the field and discover new things. Yes. Stefan, have you had a similar experience as an, uh, as an early stage investigator? That's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I, I think every immunologist or, or scientist, uh, whether the, the ones that review your papers or, or the ones on study section, had at one time to memorize the complement cascade for an exam or something, and that was probably the last time they ever really thought about it or really ever really wanted to think about it. And um, it, like, and I do believe that it, 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 it what Dr. Caravan said, it's true. It, it is cyclical, and you always need a, a new paper to 
highlight something completely new that nobody thought about and people follow suit and so on. But in my experience, it might be completely uh, dependent on the study section. My feeling was that uh, in general, people think that complement is not that exciting. It's not the next upcoming exciting pathway. And that's why if uh, we can mix complement with something unusual, unheard of, uh, completely uh, out of left field, something uh, connected complement with maybe a non-immune function or a, a different cell type or a different cell function that nobody has associated uh, with complement, I think that will be maybe better received or uh, might excite reviewers better. That, that's been my, uh, my experience. Yeah, that's fair. And, and so along those lines, I'm, I'm curious, you know, one of the thoughts I've had is um, we've since, you know, when the, the previous sort of resurgence of the field was probably back in the late 1980s or in that period. Um, yes, have you in your, in your field as well as when you've read other papers, have you found certain technologies in addition to obviously the global knockout mice that you think would be helpful to provide us with better answers that you know, we were unable to get in the past 20 years and, and come up with some of these this understanding? Well, I think... Um uh, so what is what makes it exciting in the field is that instead of global knockout, we have you know floxed mice or you know ways of finding cell-specific expression of these. So um, most of these um, C3, for instance, spin flocks. So you can actually then knock it in specific cell types and try to understand that. Um, so. I mean, yes, no, you you can make it all as exciting as you want to. But going back to what the question is, you know, what is what is your scientific question and what is the basis for that question that you want to ask that relates to complement protein? And in, I mean, I can give you an example. In my case, really, I was not a complement biologist. And when we did our first array and all these kinds of complement proteins, in fact, at the gene level, popped up. I was not excited, and I said, "Oh God, could we find something else?" Because you know, it's just uh, as Stefan mentioned, it was just like a very complicated pathway that you had to sort of master yourself in. But I have to credit my graduate students that they sort of bypassed me. They're like, "No, no, no, this is really cool. We're going to get into it." And so, as a result, they went ahead and and learned, you know, multiple things. And then, like I said, you know, I'm not going to spoil the the system and tell you about another exciting hopefully it will be an exciting thing that we will it will get into press soon um but it really uh, is is um it shows you that if you believe in the system and you persist and you try to answer the question that you propose you will find something that novel in even in something as as old as a 100 year old protein cascade very true um, Stefan, are there any other? Uh, I know we have spoken about some of the uh, receptor flocks mice and the especially GFP knock-in mice that have or fluorescent reporter mice that have been made available in uh, that have been uh, generated more recently, especially by Dr. Cole's lab. Um, any additional uh, techniques that you found uh, that have helped you address some of the critical questions? Um, that have come up in your research? 
Um, obviously, the mice are probably the number one tool we all use, and, and eventually, I guess, some will become more uh, commercially or publicly available through something like Jackson or something. But um, there are other things where at least some things where we ourselves in a, in a lab are trying to do. If we just look at C3 deficient mice, total body knockout, and there are some compartments, at least in the lungs, of cells that are uh, quite different at baseline in mice that don't have C3. So we're going to try and explore some of uh, some single cell approaches to try and, and map to see if some uh, clusters of cells completely disappear or completely changed in the absence of C3, uh, meaning that C3 is required for some sort of either cell differentiation or cell survival. So we're really excited about that possibility. And the other thing is, what's surprising is we tend to measure C3 as kind of an end product, C3 or C3 receptor, but C3, at least in, in, in uh, the epithelium or in fibroblast, is highly dynamically regulated by all sorts of extracellular triggers, pollutants or allergens. And we really have a very minimal understanding of how, of how that functions, what are the multiple, uh, what is the transcriptional landscape of the C3 gene and its chromatin organization, all these things where new type of sequencing technology can kind of illuminate us a little bit more about the transcriptional regulation of that gene as opposed to only looking at the protein. Absolutely. I think your, your, I, I, I share your thought, thoughts here. I think historically um, people viewed this as a primarily uh, cascade-driven, uh, you know, uh, inflammatory response. And while that is still true at the end, you need the proteases to cleave C3A, C5A, generate other products. I think there are, it's, there are clearly differences that show up in both human diseases at the transcriptional level, and I think uh, both in regulators as well as activators of this system that I think would be worthwhile dissecting and may provide us with uh, more uh, biological insights into the underlying human disease. Um, I'd like to thank both of you for uh, joining us for this discussion today. Um, uh, do you have any other thoughts on, on the field or um, what's coming up? Um, I, um, I, I, I certainly hope that, that this podcast will um, basically generate a lot of enthusiasm for people to really look outside the box, not think of a complement as a cascade and perhaps more as modulators in so many levels and not just the immune system, but also the airways as well as the vasculature. So, um, yes, those are those are all excellent points. Um, no, I don't have anything extra to add. Um, it's funny because I, I have spoken to many people at conferences and, and Almost everybody invariably finds a component of complement in their microarrays, in their RNA-seq, and usually they leave that unresolved. And like, uh, and I always mention, like, no, you should pursue this. You should look at that, you know. And I, I strongly encourage people to look at it because there's so much we don't understand about these components of complement. And contrary to what most people believe, they have not only uh, 
anti-inflammatory properties in addition to pro-inflammatory properties. They also have uh, roles outside of inflammation in tissue maintenance, stemness, and so on. So there's a lot of exciting discoveries that are uh, left to be made. I strongly believe that. Well, thank you so much. We look forward to work from both of your labs as well as uh, a lot of others who've uh, started working on looking at uh, uh, this area in a more rejuvenated manner, um, not only in the lung but in different uh, organ systems to to gain insight into how uh, into human health and disease. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Okay. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye bye. We would like to thank the listeners for joining us on this Lung Biology podcast, and we hope this has provided you with some new insights regarding how the complement system may be modulating host responses in airway disease. At this year's annual American Thoracic Society conference, we will be having a session on complement as a novel target to mitigate lung disease, where we aim to understand the emerging mechanisms by which key complement proteins modulate lung inflammation with the goal of mitigating diseases such as asthma, pulmonary fibrosis, and transplant rejection. In addition, we will be having speakers on how the system modulates the immune response to lung cancer and multidrug-resistant pneumonia. We hope you will join us and continue listening to this Lung Biology Podcast. Thank you.